Welcome to the Case Collective podcast. Hosted by Barry Nelson Lawyers, Case Collective is a monthly discussion covering significant decisions handed down by courts across Australia. We'll keep you updated on major developments in case law and how they're likely to affect the Australian insurance industry and beyond. Now for our latest episode. Welcome to episode two of the Case Collective. My name is Kingsley Grimshaw. I'm a senior associate at Barry Nilsson Lawyers, and I'm joined today by my colleague at Barry Nilsson, Simi Singh. In this episode, we'll be taking you through four decisions handed down over the past month or so, which are all significant in their own ways. They include the much-anticipated second COVID-19 test case, a decision involving a truckie who was found personally liable for an accident occurring during the course of his employment, a personal injury claim arising out of a falling banana tree, and finally some useful guidance from the bench about what to do and what not to do in the context of obtaining expert evidence. So, Simi, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off, please tell us what you know about the second COVID-19 test case. Thanks, Kingsley. So the first case is out of the federal court and it's titled nine out of 10 FCA fines in favor of insurers in second COVID-19 insurance test case. And it involves Swiss Re International SE and LCA Marrickville Proprietary Limited. This case is interesting because it provides some guidance as to how the court will handle business interruption cases regarding COVID-19 moving forward. So here, several businesses made claims on their policies saying that COVID-19 had interrupted their business and they had suffered loss as a result. In nine out of 10 of those claims, the court found the policies would not apply. This was the second test case and it brought together 10 distinct small business claims made across six insurers, which were Allianz, Chubb, Guild, IAG, QBE and Swiss RE. In each case, the insured had made a claim under the policy, the insurer had declined the claim, and the insurer had then sought a declaration from the court that the insuring clauses in the policy did not apply. Now, there were four general types of clauses in issue, and these were, firstly, hybrid clauses, which provided cover for loss from orders or actions of the authority closing or restricting access to premises, but only where those orders or actions were made as a result of infectious disease or the outbreak of infectious disease was within a specified radius of the insured premises. Secondly, there were prevention of access clauses, which provided cover for loss from orders or actions of the authority preventing or restricting access to insured premises because of damage or a threat of damage to property or persons. Thirdly, infectious disease clauses, which provided cover for loss arising from either infectious diseases or the outbreak of an infectious disease at the insured premises or within a specified radius of insured premises. And fourthly, catastrophe clauses, which provided cover for loss resulting from action of a civil authority during a catastrophe. So looking at what the court said now, Her Honour Justice Jago held that in all cases but one, the insuring clauses did not respond. Her Honour found that the proper construction of the hybrid clauses required the orders or actions of the authorities to be made as a result of disease at the insured premises or within a specified radius of the insured premises. So here, although the public health directions applied to the insured premises because COVID was essentially everywhere, it couldn't be said that the directions were made specifically as a result of anything that occurred at the insured premises or within a specific radius of the premises. And in some cases, the order or action did not actually require closure of the premises. 
Regarding the prevention of access clauses, Her Honour found they could not properly be construed as applying to disease. This was because in circumstances where the policies specifically provided for disease in one insuring clause, being the hybrid clauses, interpreting the prevention of access clauses as applying to disease would involve profound incongruence and incoherence in the operation of the policy, which was to be avoided. Now, I mentioned before that there was one case in which Her Honour found that the insuring clause did respond, and that was a policy issued to Meridian Travel. Meridian operated a travel agency in inner Melbourne, and the policy contained an infectious disease clause, which operated by reference to the outbreak of a human infectious or contagious disease occurring within a 20-kilometre radius. The clause did not require that the premises be closed, and it did not refer to any action by any authority. The insurer for that claim conceded that there was an outbreak of COVID-19 within a 20-kilometre radius, and therefore Justice Jago found that the infectious disease clause did respond. That being said, Her Honour did flag that Meridian would have substantial difficulty actually proving that the outbreak of COVID-19 within a 20-kilometre radius of its premises was the proximate cause of any loss. And that was because, on the evidence, the principal, or perhaps the sole cause of the business interruption, was the federal government's overseas travel ban, which makes sense given Meridian was a travel company. It's also important to note that any loss that could be established would be reduced by the amount of any compensation received by way of either JobKeeper payments or rental reductions or abatements allowed by the landlord of the insured premises. So in terms of broader implications coming out of this case, obviously the intention of this second test case was to provide some guidance to the industry, which is precisely what it does. Having said that, an appeal was swiftly lodged following the decision, and you can easily see the matter reaching Australia's highest court before the issues are finally put to bed. In those circumstances, the decision in the second test case is certainly worth close consideration, but the industry waits with anticipation as to what may come next. Thanks, Simi. The second case we have to discuss today relates to the Queensland District Court decision of Blenner's Transport and Dowling. What makes it so interesting is that it involves an employed truck driver who was personally sued for damage when he crashed a truck in the course of his employment. Usually in such a situation, you would expect to see the truck driver's employer sued on the basis that it would be vicariously liable for any negligence on the part of the driver when performing his employment duties. However, it appears that due to the particular corporate structure of the entities involved in this matter, the plaintiffs decided to skip over the employer and sue the truck driver directly. In terms of the factual background, the first and second plaintiffs, who were respectively goods carriers and truck owners, sued the defendant truck driver for about $600,000 on the basis that he lost control and crashed a fruit-laden truck whilst attempting to answer his mobile. The defendant truck driver, who was self-represented, was a professional with over 30 years of experience at the time of the accident. He was employed by Labor Hire Queensland, PTYLTD, who supplied his services to the plaintiffs. It was in the course of his employment that the defendant came into possession of the plaintiff's goods and truck, making him, in a legal sense, what is called a sub-bailee for reward, with his employer, Labor Hire, QLD, PTYLTD, as the bailee. So on 18 September 2019, the defendant was driving the truck on the Bruce Highway south of Ingham when he received an incoming call on his mobile. What followed was recorded on the truck's in-cabin cameras. Having failed to connect to the incoming call with his Bluetooth earpiece, the footage shows the defendant looking down and swiping his phone with one hand, with his other hand on the steering wheel. As he did this, the truck, which was travelling at about 97 kilometres an hour, veered to the left of the road where the shoulder of the road fell away steeply. 
The defendant tried to correct the truck, but it rolled, severely injuring the defendant and damaging the truck and its contents. The defendant argued that the plaintiffs breached statutory duties pursuant to the Work Health and Safety Act and were contributorily negligent for a number of reasons, including one, putting the defendant under pressure to forsake rest breaks to meet driving schedules, two, failing to provide hands-free technology, three, failing to provide appropriate training as to the correct way to answer a call while driving, four, failing to fit the truck with lane departure warning systems, five, failing to ensure that the truck was not overloaded. At trial, the court found that the defendant as a sub-bailee owed a duty of care to the plaintiffs and that he breached that duty by illegally using his mobile device, failing to pay due care and attention and losing control of the truck, causing it to crash. As a result, the plaintiffs suffered loss and damage to the goods in the truck, which was foreseeable and not too remote. It was held that the plaintiffs did not breach any duties to the defendant and none of the allegations raised by the defendant caused or contributed to the crash. As a consequence, the defendant was ordered to pay $545,000 and change in damages to the plaintiffs. This is really quite an interesting decision, highlighting the direct risks borne by particular employees engaged via a labour hire company. While conventional wisdom dictates that if something goes wrong in an employment setting, it's the employer that gets sued as the entity most likely to have liability cover. However, as this case demonstrates, if there's a reason a plaintiff doesn't want to sue the employer, they can and do go after the employee directly. For the insurance industry, it perhaps highlights an underserviced area of the market in circumstances where labour hire arrangements are becoming more common. The truck driver in this case was self-represented at trial, so presumably uninsured. In those circumstances, the case demonstrates that some employees would benefit from considering what risk they bear personally in the performance of their employment arrangements and what products are out there to respond to such risk. The third case is out of the Supreme Court of Queensland titled Banana Workers' Damages Reduced for Contributory Negligence, Work History and Medical Condition involving Longbottom and Eleanor Collins Proprietary Limited. Now, this one is interesting because it discusses the impact of the plaintiff's own contributory negligence and the requirement that the plaintiff act reasonably to avoid obvious risks, even where the employer has failed to give specific instruction or training regarding the obvious risk. By way of background, in June 2016, the plaintiff was injured during the course of his employment while he was harvesting bananas with a co-worker at the employer's farm. The plaintiff was working as the humper, which is the person required to catch the banana bunch. The co-worker was working as the cutter, which is the person responsible for collapsing the banana bunch. The plaintiff sustained several injuries, including a right hip, right shoulder, and secondary psychological injury when the co-worker made an incorrect incision at the top of the banana tree. Instead of gradually bending, it caused the top of the banana tree to fall onto the plaintiff. The plaintiff alleged negligence against the employer on the basis that it had failed to safely train the co-worker in the correct method of harvesting bananas from taller than usual trees. The employer alleged that the plaintiff had been trained to stand away from the banana tree during harvesting. The employer further alleged that the plaintiff was guilty of contributory negligence for failing to follow his training by not standing clear of the banana tree when the co-worker made the incision. Now, the court awarded judgment in favour of the plaintiff in the sum of $482,696. The court found that the employer had paired the plaintiff with a cutter who lacked the necessary training or skill, which is why the co-worker made an incision that was far too deep into the banana tree, causing it to fall onto the plaintiff instead of gradually bending. Chief Justice Holmes considered that the risk of injury when care was not taken in cutting banana trees was foreseeable and significant, and that a reasonable employer would have guarded against it. 
Now, where it gets interesting in respect of contributory negligence, the court found no evidence that specific instructions had been provided to the plaintiff about harvesting larger banana trees. However, the court found that the plaintiff had disregarded a risk that ought to have been apparent. As such, he had failed to take reasonable care for his safety, and the court assessed contributory negligence of 10%. Concerning quantum and primarily economic loss, the court concluded that the plaintiff could no longer perform heavy physical labour, had a sporadic and interrupted work history, and would have difficulties retraining given his labour-focused skill set. The court also found the plaintiff would likely have settled down with steady labouring work but for the incident, and would have reasonable prospects in finding part-time work. And the court also noted the plaintiff's pre-existing degenerative lower back condition. Accordingly, the court applied a 25% discount to the plaintiff's future economic loss. So in terms of this case's broader implications, this decision is significant because it demonstrates that even where an employer cannot establish that it gave specific instructions to a worker regarding safety, a court may still find contributory negligence where the risk of injury is obvious or prudence dictates the worker should have taken certain steps to act reasonably for their own safety. Final case note is out of the Supreme Court of Queensland titled Don't Let Your Expert Evidence Muddy the Water and relates to the decision of Landell and Insurance Australia. The decision relates to the Townsville 2019 floods. In principle, it involves a consideration of a particular insurance policy and whether or not a certain provision limiting liability for damage caused by flood applied. However, in my opinion, the most interesting aspect of the decision relates to some guidance Her Honour Justice Dalton provided to the profession at large in relation to the briefing of experts in contested litigation. In those circumstances, I'll run through the substance of the decision briefly, but then turn to summarising the guidance offered by Her Honour. So by way of background, the plaintiff's own land in Townsville, which is the site of a shopping centre, and was insured by the defendant insurer in 2019. On 3 and 4 February 2019, water inundated the shopping centre to the depth of around half a metre. The insurer contended that the flooding event fell within an exclusion or limiting clause which had the effect of confining the insurer's liability to $250,000. The loss suffered by the plaintiffs was far greater than $250,000 and so they contended that the limiting clause did not apply. Relevantly, for the purposes of the limiting clause, flood was defined to mean the inundation of normally dry land by water overflowing from the normal confines of any natural watercourse. It was common ground that the inundation of the shopping centre was caused by the flow of water from some other area. The plaintiffs, in reliance upon expert evidence, contended that the water had travelled from a flat area of land, i.e. not a natural watercourse, adjacent to the shopping centre. On the other hand, the insurer contended, in reliance upon its own expert evidence, that the water that had inundated the shopping centre came from adjacent watercourses, namely Ross River and Gordon Creek. The bulk of the court's judgment involved an in-depth analysis of the expert evidence. Her Honour Justice Dalton was critical of the theories advanced by the plaintiff's expert, Dr McIntosh, and noted various inconsistencies in reasoning and unsupported assumptions in his conclusions. Conversely, the experts briefed by the insurer were generally accepted on the basis that their conclusions were based on the real physical parameters of the site and were consistent with other evidence. In that context, Her Honour found that the inundation was caused by flood for the purposes of the limiting clause and therefore the insurer's exposure was limited to $250,000. So the principal claim can be considered a victory for the insurers and that victory largely hinged upon Her Honour's strong preference for the evidence given by experts briefed on behalf of the insurer. However, as I mentioned, in the course of the judgment, Her Honour set out some guidance for practitioners and insurers when briefing experts. That guidance can be summarised as follows. 
Firstly, lawyers should ensure they properly analyse the expert's evidence in advance of any final report tendered at trial so that any contradictions, errors or gaps in reasoning can be brought to the attention of the expert at an early stage. Secondly, insurers should avoid instructing experts directly as it leaves the expert open to criticism as to their independence. Thirdly, where one or more expert is briefed and the intention is to present their evidence as two independent views to the court, then the experts should not discuss their evidence together, particularly where they have not already reduced their opinion to writing. Finally, lawyers should assist experts to avoid seeking to answer questions of law and in that context, when the legal dispute relates to the proper construction of an insuring policy, the expert should not be provided a copy of that policy. That's all for this episode of Case Collective. Thanks for joining me today, Simi. Thanks for having me, Kingsley. As always, you can read a full summary of the cases discussed in today's episode and get in touch with our team by heading to our website at bnlaw.com.au. And if you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Until next time.